Beautiful worship, beautiful worship. Please find your way in God's word. Romans chapter 2, verse 6. We're slowly moving through chapter 2. So much God has to say to us. The letter written by Paul and the Holy Spirit to the Church of Rome. The Jewish people have been exalted, expelled from Rome, and after five years, they're allowed to come back. And when the Jewish believers returned to the church, what did they find? They found a Gentile-run church, and this caused major divisions, as we can see. No unity. They, they were divided on many issues. How to follow Jesus? Do we circumcise? Do we follow the law? You know, do, do we celebrate the Sabbath? What's the purpose of the law? I mean, just on and on, you know, they're just butting heads at every turn. So Paul wrote this letter to the church explaining how God, from the beginning, was creating a new humanity for himself, a humanity that, that consisted of Jew and Gentile alike. All will become one in the kingdom of God. And that happened. That has happened. Everyone's identity is now in Jesus Christ. We are not known as the first Baptist Christians, or in Phil's case, the second Baptist Christian. You'll have to ask him about that one. Or, or, you know, or any other way of identifying ourselves. You know, our identity is very simple. We are children of God. We are all one in the kingdom. And if the church could live out that statement, it would bring unity to the body of Christ for the sake of the gospel. Paul wanted that. He wanted unity in the church of Rome for, and for all the churches after. Amen? Know this. Christ is the great unifier. It took an act of God to unify fallen humanity, and God has acted. He has sent his son so that, who, that so whoever, the whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. He is the great unifier. The whosoevers are one. So Paul writes this letter to the church and gives a full explanation of the life, death, and resurrection in G, of Jesus in order to bring all together as one. Now, last week, I, I gave you this little outline, which basically broke this uh, uh, letter down into four sections. Great, a great way to remember what's going on here. Chapters 1 through 4, we see the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, reveals God's righteousness. That is, God is just, and his righteousness is revealed by him fulfilling his promise to Israel. We also see fallen mankind in this first section, and we see that things need to be made right. In chapters 5 through 8, we see how through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God creates a new humanity. And by God creating this new humanity, he fulfills his promise to Israel, and we will study that in chapters 9 through 11. And the result is this gospel, this gospel of Jesus Christ, will unify the church, chapters 12 through 16. Unity because of the gospel and for the sake of the gospel. So let's look down at verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So each one, that means everyone, 
will stand before God and give an account of what they did with what God had given them. So we always have to ask ourselves, always doing that self-examination, what have I done with the light that God has given to me? That's between you and God. You work that out. You know, we looked at many verses last week that, that talked about our good works, our good deeds, and how we are to do good works. Now, we know, and we want to make this really clear, that we are not saved by good works. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 clearly states that, as well as many other scriptures and uh, verses in the scriptures. But scripture also tells us, once a person is saved, that that is coming to faith in Jesus Christ, he will produce those good works. Ephesians 2, 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I hit this again because I want to make sure that we got this down and I want to make another point about these good works. You know, there, there, there must be a response to the great love that our God has poured out on us. And faith generates good works in a believer's life. The good deeds are what, hap are what happens when the Spirit of God goes to work in our hearts. The deeds are there. We just have to start walking in them. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. If all the people who claim to be believers of Christ had the attitude of, well, I'm saved by God's love, right? I'm going to heaven, right? So just let me sit back and enjoy the ride. Live as I please until that day comes, no need to do any good deeds, I'm saved, I'm there. Pastor Vince would say, think about this. Think about the condition of the world if everyone had this attitude, if everyone was the easy believism, okay? If, if none of God's people did any of the good deeds that he had set before them, if everyone had the mindset of, of, you know, of that easy believism, that's I'm saved, that's it, no change, no need to do anything, I'm going to heaven. Think about what this world would look, out, look like without the influence of the kingdom of God at hand. We can't think that way. We can't act that way. If you think the world is in bad shape now, man, it'd be a whole lot uglier. It would really be bad if the kingdom of God was not at work in it today. So, so, you know, so that's the Christians not doing anything, not letting that light shine. What would the world look like? Now, on the other hand, think about this. Think about what the world would look like if all proclaiming Christians were living out the great commandment every day. That is living a life that loves the Lord, the Lord God Almighty with all our hearts, mind, soul, and strength and then love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. Think about what a light our marriages would be if the husbands loved their wives as much as they loved themselves, or, or wives loved their husband in such a way. What a light. Think about the impact our love would have on this world if all Christians put into practice loving our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. Think about the influence our children would have on others if brothers and sisters cared for each other as much as they cared for themselves. Think about it. That's why this attitude, I'm saved, I, I don't have to do anything else, does not line up with Scripture. The, the church is to be a light, and, and it's, to, and it's to, to each individual to do what God has called them to do. 
God calls us out to do the good deeds he has set before us. And you know what's awesome? You know what's really awesome? Is that I hear and see what you guys are doing in your families and communities all the time. I'm sure I probably don't know half of what you're doing, which is great. Go do it. Go live it out. But you know, but you know what spurs your pastors on to get up here and preach week after week after week? Is, is seeing the ones who are in his workmanship, who are created in Christ Jesus for, the, for good works. Doing the deeds that God has prepared beforehand. That's what keeps us going. Can I get an amen? Pastor Ryan, Pastor Jared? Man, you guys bless us. It's so encouraging to see the body coming together, building one another up, spurring one another on towards love and good deeds, taking it out into the world. Man, it's a great joy to shepherd this flock. So hats off to you guys. Look down at verse 7. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. You know, this is, this is the desire of the one who has put his faith in Jesus. Patience, persistence, well-doing. You know, th this is the one who has a steadfast commitment to doing good. He, he seeks to share in the glory honor and incorruptibility that finds its source in God. You know, a good way to look at this text, this verse and the next verse is, is that, that God will give you your heart's desire. Now, now you hear that with the prosperity gospel. God will give you whatever your heart's desire. If you want that new car, all you have to do is pray with enough faith. That's right. And you'll get that new car. Pastor Vince would say, but here in this text, we do see that God will give you what your heart desires. In the final judgment day, each person will receive what they really wanted. If we desire to be with God, to be close to God, God will gladly fulfill that desire. Did you see that? He will give you eternal life with him. He will give you what your heart desires. And the same goes for the second group of people in this text. The ones who live, whose lives are controlled by selfish ambition. They have rebelled against the truth and allowed themselves to be persuaded by that which is wrong, always resisting the truth and yielding to the wrong. Look at these people in verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking, they do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. They will be, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. You know, the, these are the ones who, who want nothing to do with God. They want to be far away from God. They don't want God in their life. And so God will give them their heart's desire. This is the, the self-confident, self-righteous person who through his own self-seeking has actually turned away from the truth. That is, he resisted the gospel and is following his own evil paths. This is the one that Paul spoke about in chapter 1, who one has no, no excuse for his actions. He believes he's wise, but yet he's foolish. He will not worship the one true God, but instead he's willing to worship false gods and idols, and his acts will be evil. No excuse. And in the end, God will give this man what his heart desires. He will be far away from God. There's a choice to be made. Each person has to make that choice. Peace or tribulation, glory or wrath, honor or fury. 
to be with God or to be far away from God? We have to ask ourselves, what is my heart's desire? We always have to do that. What is my heart's desire? Because God is going to give us exactly what we want. There is a final judgment coming, and God will render to each one according to his works. Now, there's something else that I want to point out here in these verses. <clears throat> Paul's talking about a final judgment that's coming for all, right? <clears throat> well, watch this. Judaism is the only religion that taught that a final judgment would come. The only one. Neither Greek nor Roman religion or philosophy or any philosophy had any teachings of a final judgment, you know, because it's always about man. It's not about God there. So all these man-made gods, all these false religions, idol worshipers, none of them teach of a final judgment to come. Why is that a big deal? You know, well, what is Paul saying to the church when he brings up this, the judgment of God? What is, you know, what, what he's saying to the Jewish people is this. He's saying, there is one God. There is a creator God who is in control of this entire world. The world's broken right now, but one day when Jesus returns, he will make things right again. He will do it with complete impartiality on that day of judgment. The Jews taught the same thing. They just didn't teach Jesus was coming back. They taught the same thing, that there would be a day of judgment, and on that day, God would make all things right again. So Paul is making sure they understand. He said, he said, look, I'm not undoing any of the Jewish doctrine here. As a matter of fact, Paul said, I, I'm confirming this. He's confirming that there is only one true living God, and he is the God of Israel, and he will return, and he will judge the entire world, and he will make things right. Paul has taken them all the way back to the beginning to prove this point, that the, that the world is rotten, mankind has turned from God, and God's coming back to judge. The God who created mankind is coming back. He will return, and mankind will have to answer to him. They will have to answer to the king of Israel, the king of all the nations. So Paul confirms their teaching that, that there is only one God and that judgment will come. He said, you know what? You're right there. You're correct there. I'll give you that. But as he continues, he corrects some of their errors that they have on their thinking on how uh, they have on who will be judged as he continues this theme of judgment. He said, let me, let me straighten some of this out. Paul's telling them, telling these Jews who, who thought that they were somehow protected from God's judgment because of their heritage, he's telling them not only that you will be judged, but you'll be first in line. You know, they, they had priority and blessings. We know that chapter one said that the gospel and salvation came first for the Jew, then the Gentile. But priority and blessing leads to priority in judgment, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Look down at verse 12. For all have sinned, without the law will also perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God but the doers of the law who will be justified for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law they show that the work of the law is written in, on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men 
by Christ Jesus. So God's judgment will be impartial. That's, that's the point that Paul's trying to get across here. That is, it's not biasing, but, but treating all equal, showing no favoritism. So, so Paul explains how that rolls out. He said, look, all have, the ones who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. He's speaking of the Gentiles here. That's anyone who's not Jewish. They will be judged on the basis of the knowledge available to them, yes. But they will not be condemned for failing to conform to a code of laws that they knew nothing about. They didn't have the law. The law was for the Israel. Now, the words say that they will perish. The word says that they will perish, yes. But they will not perish because they didn't have or keep the Jewish law. They will perish, why? Because they have sinned. The law had nothing to do with their sin. Remember, all have sinned. We saw that at the beginning. So the Gentiles will not perish because they broke the law. They will perish because they have sinned, and God will judge accordingly. So then Paul turns to the Jewish brother here. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. The, the point that Paul is making to his Jewish brothers and sisters is this. You are indeed privileged in possessing the law. Yes, that is a privilege. But pro possessing the law has done no good. Why? Because Israel as a whole has failed to keep the law. Jews will be judged by God's written law because they had been trained in it. They knew the scriptures. They will be judged for sinning against God's law that they knew so well. Listen, the Torah was meant to be obeyed, not merely listened to. This is repeated again and again throughout this letter and throughout scripture. And that's why Paul makes this, this statement in verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Possessing the law, hearing the law, does not make you right with God. That's not how it works. Paul says, but the doers of the law will be justified. Doers. Sound familiar? James 1.22. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently in, at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides in it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but listen, an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So it's important to not get confused here. It was never God's intention that anyone could be saved by the law or be a doer of the law. We, we, we will see that the purpose of the law in the next chapter, we're gonna get there. I promise we're gonna get out of chapter two. But, but let's look at this for a second before we go on. In order for one to be saved by being doers of the law, then that would mean that they would have to keep the law perfectly without making any tiny mistakes. James says in 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of, of all of it. Somebody said that the law is like a piece of glass. If you break it anywhere, you've broken the entire piece of glass. It's just a broken piece of glass no matter what you do to it. But I want you to listen to Galatians 2.15. It says, 
We ourselves, Paul's writing again, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So that's true. So what's, what is Paul saying here when he says the doers of the law will be justified? I look at it this way. If I hold this Bible in my hand, and that's all I do with it, is just hold it, am I made right with God because I possess the Holy Scriptures? No. Absolutely not. Amen. I love amen corners. Now, we cannot be a doer of the word if all we do is hold it. Right? If we never open it or read it, if we never do that, there, there is no way we can ever become a doer of what it says. But once we open it, once we read it, it is only then that we can apply it. When we understand salvation through Jesus Christ and the Spirit goes to work in us, it is then that we can clearly see that God has called us into action and we move. It is then that we become doers and not just hearers of the word. And being a doer is evidence of our love that we have for the Lord God Almighty. James said, but prove yourselves doers of the word. We, we become doers, and by being doers, we are then justified. We are made right. We have a new standing with God. God does not give eternal life or justification to those who perform good works but to those who believe in him. And for those who trust in Jesus, their conduct reveals their regenerate hearts. They become doers, not just hearers, and are declared right, a new standing. Now, like I said last week, your salvation is between you and God. Search your heart. Your good deeds, they're between you and God. Search your heart. Search your heart and see if you are a doer of the word because you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Only you know that. It's between you and God. I hope I didn't give you a big headache on that. Did you hang with me there? Two did. Good. Now, look, Paul, Paul's explaining to the Jewish believers that, that they are not exempt or, or that they will... Re, they, they will uh, or that they will receive a pass when it comes to the judgment of God just because they possess the law. He said that, that, that's not how it works. You must be doer. It's a heart condition. Okay? So we're moving on. Paul continues on this unity problem. He's bringing everyone together by putting everyone in their place. One of the dividers in the church was that the, the Jews looked down on the Gentiles. You know, they, they saw them... Uh, not as an equal to them, right? That, look, that you're not God's chosen nation, they would say. You know, you don't have, you, you don't have the revelation of God's work in the Mosaic law. You know, it was a, a prideful attitude of, do you know who I am? I, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin or whatever tribe, you know? It, it's like, look, we've been doing this God stuff a lot longer than you have. You're just a Gentile. So, so yeah, could, you, could you imagine the tension in the church? Could you imagine the division that's going on here? 
But Paul, he's settling this problem by pointing out there are moral Gentiles who do by nature things required of the law. So I want you to think about this. He says in verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So Paul is underscoring for his Jewish audience the critical importance of actually doing what the law says. Paul is removing the belief that the Jews were secure with God or that they were right with God just because they have the law, just because they possess it. Paul begins this verse here with the word for. He said for, meaning that he's going to explain something that he just said. Basically, as Paul's saying, you have the law, the Gentiles do not. They are more of a doer of the law than you are. Whenever Gentiles, by natural instinct, did what the law required, they demonstrated the existence of a guiding principle within themselves. Twice, in, in, in verse 14, Paul stressed it. Non-Jewish people had no specific knowledge of the Mosaic law. Yet, in certain cases, they did instinctively the kinds of things required by the Jewish law. They cared for the sick, showed kindness to strangers. You know, the, the Good Samaritan, remember him? Prime example. By natural instinct, he did what the law required. He loved his neighbor. Paul says they are a law for themselves. Does that mean that the law is irrelevant? Absolutely not. He's not saying that. Again, we will see the purpose of the law next week when we get into chapter 3. What Paul is saying, though, the Gentiles show the work of the law written in their hearts. It's not the law itself which is written in the heart, but the work of the law, and that's what the Jews should have been doing. They should have been doers. The work which the law was designed to do in the lives of the Israelites is seen in some measure in the lives of the Gentiles. That's what Paul's saying. Come on, guys. Hold on. But you know, something to make note of, when Paul brings up written on the hearts, we hear echoes, don't we? He may be referring to the promise in Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jeremiah 32, 40. I will make them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from them from, from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land of faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. So what do we see here? What do we see as we hear written on the heart? We see the covenant that God has made with his people has been renewed according to his promise. He promises it's through Christ Jesus that the renewal was being implemented by the Spirit in those who were in Christ Jesus. The Gentiles didn't have the written law, but because of the renewal of the covenant, 
they have it in their hearts. We're definitely going to expand on this as we go through this letter. I just want to put that in your ears. Think about that. The new covenant being fulfilled. But Paul is showing the difference between the Jew and Gentile, and yet at the same time showing that they're alike. The Gentiles are doing the works of the law, even though they don't have it. He said, verse 15 said, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse. You know, their conscience serving as a monitor confirms this instinctive knowledge that every person has. And their thoughts are constantly deciding the righteous, the rightness or the wrongness of their actions. We had that struggle all the time, right? Accusing or excusing, forbidding or allowing. That's the struggle in man. All of mankind has, has a conscience. Whether he listens to it or not, it's up to him. Yeah, I was thinking about this. You can find evidence of God's moral law in every society. Every society, every culture prohib prohibits murder. And yet, in all societies, that law has been broken. Every one of them. So man knows what is right, has no excuse, right? But the problem is man ends up doing what is wrong. And again, it's not enough to know what is right. We must also do it. We must be doers of what is right. Takes us back to the previous verse, right? It's not enough to possess or even know the law. You must do it. And then Paul takes us right back to the judgment of God. That's what Paul's talking about in this section. Verse 16, on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So the word tells us again that all men will be judged. Those with the law will be judged. Those without the law will be judged. And here he says that God also judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Meaning that not only are we held accountable for what we knew, but we are held accountable for what we do. And here we are accountable for what goes on in our hearts, the secrets that man holds, he says. No one, no, not one, will escape the judgment of God. It is only God who is able to judge the things that man has kept secret. That's why we're not good judges. We don't know it all. You know, some people believe that if, if, if no one knows about it, then they've gotten away with it. Not so. Not true. A man's life will be an open book when he stands before the great white throne. And that's why God's judgment will be fair. It will be impartial because there is absolutely nothing, not even the secrets of people's hearts that are not known to him. The only way to truly judge a person is to be able to judge the secrets of the heart, conscience, and thoughts. You know, when, when man stands before God, he's not going to have to do any explaining. You know, God's going to bring up something. We're going to go, oh, wait a minute. Now, let me tell you why I did that. No, it's not going to happen. He will know. His judgment will be perfect based on his perfect knowledge of every action and every motive. You heard me say, 
Nobody's going to walk away and say, that's not fair. He's not fair. No, he is impartial. He is fair. The judgment will be through Christ Jesus because God has entrusted all judgment to the Son, John 5, 22. And I love what Paul did here. He called it my gospel. It was given to him by revelation of Jesus Christ. We see that in Galatians 1, 2, but he calls it my gospel. My gospel. Can we do that? Can you do that? Can, can we call the gospel of Jesus Christ my gospel? You know what, what I'm asking? Do we own it? Do we really own it? Do we love the good news of Jesus Christ enough to put it into our, uh, put it into works out there and show the people, the love of lost and dying world, what love looks like? Do we share the good news of Christ? We got to let our light shine and not just be hearers, but doers. Do we love the gospel of Christ so much that our heart desires to be unified and to glorify God? Know this as we leave today, as we have seen, God will give us the desires of our heart. So we must search our hearts and really take a good look at what we desire. What do we desire? You know, we're going to roll on in through what Paul talks about to the, uh, to the Israelites and the law and, and their security there and the purpose of the law. And that's great study. And it, it's, it's beautiful to see God at work and fulfilling his covenant. But you know, as we walk away here today, we have to know that we know that we're in the hands of God and that he is a fair judger and he has called us into action to go out and to love. Amen. Pastor.